we're right in the middle of it now. There's no question about it, and there's no any longer putting it off. We are right in the middle of the steaming, fetid, boiling, hissing Fleischmann's yeast part of the year. You know, no, really, I think I think people. One, there's one group of people who are literally afraid of summer because of what summer does to them. I really mean that. I think I think that the heat, the jungle passions that are leashed for most of the year are suddenly surging, moving like great forces through each and every one of us until Because I, I believe that man, you know, there's there's many a theory that says that man originated in a basic tropical atmosphere. That the uh, oh yes, uh, that the, that there is one school of archaeologists who hold that the origin of man was in the heart of equatorial Africa. Somewhere, they, they have even pinpointed it, that the first man was somewhere near Lake Victoria in equatorial Africa. That was the very first guy who could have been called remotely human. And, and he walked around, and that sunbeat town, and, and those hot tropical breezes. Have you ever seen Lake Victoria? Let me tell you something about the tropics. Now, I mean, I'm talking about the real tropics. I'm not talking about Miami. I'm not talking about uh, places like uh, uh, the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico. And as a matter of fact, when, when, when you ever mention to people, I don't care who they are, a tropical island or the tropics, there is a kind of sense of excitement. It's just there. Even if the guy lives in Maine, if the guy lives in Alaska, the idea of a tropical island has a tremendous, deep, psychological urge. It's a tremendous, deep thing. It, it draws you into it. We are tropical animals. We are literally uh, tropical fish who have learned to live in the, in the northern seas. But we somehow remember the tropical origins. We remember the heat. We remember the steam. Uh, we remember the smell of the jungle. And whenever we do smell that jungle... There is a kind of excitement that you just can't explain. Now, uh, I guess I guess the thing is that most people have never really seen a jungle or have been near a jungle, a real jungle. I'm talking about a jungle. I'm not talking about the swamps uh, in Connecticut back of back of the uh, back of the big river. I'm talking about a jungle. And anyone who has ever been near a real jungle, I'm talking about. Uh, the kind of jungle that uh, that they write about, say that Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote about in Tarzan of the Apes. Now you know you know you know what part of the world he was writing about. He was writing about Nigeria. Uh, he was discussing the Nigerian bush, and I've been in the Nigerian bush. I've been there, and and I can say this that 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 in spite of the obvious. Well, I suppose you might say anti-civilization things that are there. For example, the intense heat. We fight heat. Uh, the, the man really fights it and at the same time loves it. Uh, we fight heat, but heat excites us in spite of the fact that it also depresses us. Uh, just like a tropical fish. I'm sure that a tropical fish lying on the bottom of some, some tepid jungle pool uh, is, is, laying there because the, is lying there because the heat is so much. But at the same time... It, it, it keeps them going. Well, I've been in these bush countries several times. And once you have tasted a jungle, once you've been near one, you just can't ever get it out of you. I don't care what you do, because I think it never is out of you in the first place. It's always there. Now, what does this do to you? Uh, what is the first thing that happens 
in, in, a, in, a, in a hot, tropical, steaming area. Immediately, one of the very first things that happens to you is all of your old ideas begin to crumble and things which you have never felt were part of you begin to come up, like superstition. That is one. It takes ten minutes in the jungle and you begin to believe in voodoo. Believe me, fifteen minutes in the jungle and you begin to believe that if you do take this small piece of ebony wood and you burn it the proper way, rub the ashes into the golden eye of the idol, by God, Benton and Bowles will come tumbling down if you do it right. What is it? I mean, what, what is it that does it? Well, I, I, I guess, I guess you, we live in a city. You know, most of us today live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an artificial atmosphere, totally artificial. And because of the artificial atmosphere, we are prevented from seeing what we really are. Uh, it's, it's as though, really, it's as though somehow we've created an artificial world. It's air-conditioned. That's one. That's artificial, you know. It's not real air that's blowing in at you. Air-conditioned. We have manufactured our own air. Uh, in many places now, do you know that in certain big cities, there are buildings that are already in use that in the wintertime manufacture artificial sunshine? So a guy can walk into the building... And they have, yes, they have, they have the, the, the windows fixed up. They have certain kinds of infrared light. They have ultraviolet light. They have it filtered. So you walk in, and the sun is shining in through the window. And it's real sun. You can get a sunburn. I mean, you walk in there. And at the same time, at the other end of the room, the air is being sucked out, ground up. It's being filtered. They run it through charcoal things. And then they blow an artificial atmosphere. And you can adjust it for any type. Seaside atmosphere, for example. You can get... And a genuine seaside atmosphere that has salt in it, that has the smell of algae, <laughs> has the smell of rotting old bluefish, has the smell of old wet bathing suits, has the smell of old saltwater taffy being washed out to sea, rusting beer cans, the smell of boats rotting away down at the dock. It's all blown in at you, and you're living in Omaha. Okay, the guy's nine million miles from the sea. Now, is this or is this not artificial? Of course it is. And in the end you can begin to forget exactly what you are. You're, you're, you're living in something that does not bring it out. Now, I would, I would, I would submit that if, if you would like to see some passion strike Lever House over here one day, or one of the passionless buildings, I, I, can you imagine a more passionless building than the Pan Am building? Uh, speaking of passionless, it's got about as much passion as a gigantic mound of Reynolds wrap. Just stands there and the sun bounces off it. It's... You see, most buildings up to this point have reflected man's uses. They have reflected man's attitudes, his dreams, uh, his insanities, his ridiculousnesses. Uh, for example, if you go downtown around the 20s, take a look at some of the old buildings that are down around 6th Avenue in the 20s. Just look at them. Really look at them. Look up near the top, and you'll see giant marble angels hanging off the side of a building that's a warehouse. They got nothing but old moose heads in there now, old truck bodies and stuff. But up at the top of that building, there are enormous concrete gargoyles, religious figures. There is a building down on 15th Street that's dirty. It has 200 years of dirt and crud on it. But what do you think is up there on the top carved in granite? An enormous figure of St. George. Saint, and what's he doing? Well, what does St. George always do when they have giant figures carved? cars. He's slaying a dragon. 
And there's a dragon laying there, and down underneath it, it says the Acme Haulage Corporation. Now, I don't know whether any guys who work for the truck company ever look up and see St. George slaying a dragon and relate it to Acme Haulage. I don't know. But the point is, buildings reflected in a very real way the attitude of men towards their lives and everything else around. Somehow the idea of having St. George on the side of a building made sense to a guy in 1905 who was building a building. He says, we've got to have St. George up there. Now, I say that the Pan Am building also reflects our attitude towards our lives. Reynolds Ramp. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, antiseptic, artificial hope that if everything is clean, if everything is shiny, if it reflects enough light, it will be antiseptic, pure, clean, and harmless all the way through. Now, I'd like to submit an idea. I would love to see Lever House uh, get one of the, you know, you can buy these air conditioning uh, units that you can adjust your atmosphere to whatever kind of atmosphere you want. Can't you imagine uh, the, the, fetid, the fetid atmosphere of the Nigerian jungle blowing through the billing department over at Lever House? I mean, you could smell where a tiger has gone past, you know, or a camel has left a few things, you know, and 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 there's the smell of the of the of the elephants, and and once in a while the the air conditioning goes, something far off there in the shipping department is bellowing, <laughs> and you can hear the thrashing in the in in the, in the undergrowth of an enormous snake and the lap of jungle pools and water. And, and, and you know, in, in Nigeria, I'll tell you one of the things that, that you, you smell in Nigeria. When you, when you get out on the road, what, it, what passes for a road in the bush, can you imagine going through a long period, a long area of, of, a, of just completely impenetrable woods that are covered from, from ground up all the way up to maybe 60 or 70 feet from the ground with gigantic orchids? Orchids just, just, oh, you say, oh, that's great. Let me tell you, though, what it does. Everyone says, isn't that fine? One orchid by itself is beautiful. Eight million orchids somehow make you sick. There is a, there is a, is an, 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 just a, a sickening orchid. <laughs> oh, boy, it goes right through you. And yet at the same time, somehow you know that in this mold, in this rotted jungle humus, there is where you belong. I can't explain it. You just feel that you're part of the humus, moss, the peat moss. Now, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that if you could blow jungle atmosphere through the U.N. building, all the way through the U.N. building from top to bottom, by nightfall, maybe of a 24-hour day of a jungle atmosphere, the real attitudes of the people in that building would begin to come out, whether they like it or not. Uh, you'd hear Tom Toms playing on the fifth floor at the U.S. delegation. <laughs> People are forgetting. Well, uh, now, where, where do I... Uh, speaking of the jungle atmosphere, this is WOR AM and FM New York, and uh, we've got our own tigers here, uh, and we have our own jungle sounds that come out of the air conditioning unit, but they generally come from the 23rd floor, and if you stay away from that floor, you're Okay. Uh, every jungle beast, you know, learns where to go and where not to go. You'd be surprised how well those beasts know what water holes are poisonous and what aren't. Well, we're a beast. We really are. We, we know we're, we're part of the animal world, and we know our terrain. Well, let me tell you, how many of you... It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to say anything to a person from the East, particularly from the New York area, 
because, in general, this is the civilized part of America. Now, by civilized, I mean we have conquered the atmosphere here in this area. We have conquered the atmosphere, we, at least we have the feeling that we have. We have bent it to our will. Uh, there is nothing here that has its own menace, really. Uh, although a New Yorker will occasionally get scared at 2 o'clock in the morning when he's out on the Staten Island Ferry and he looks down into that water, there is something there that even Moses, even Robert Moses, can't whip. I mean, it's there, you know, it swirls on past. There's something dark in that night, boy. Well, a man who comes from a section of the country where this is not necessarily true, where we're outside of the of the light of the of the street lamps, outside of the edge of where the subway does not go, lies it. We'll always have a feeling of the it being there. Now, I, I can only say to you that this is true. Uh, have you noticed that most writers who come from the West or the Midwest invariably include the outside, let's put it this way, nature in their writings too? So Hemingway, writing about men, always included the sky. He always included the water. He always included the sun. It was all part of the world that he saw. Now, you can read most Eastern writers, and the reason I'm talking about this, because this is, this is the, this is the, the, we're coming into the, the, the real dog days, the real heat, the real jungle part of the summer. The minute you pass the 4th of July on up until the last few days of August, this is the jungle of our world. Now, uh, Hemingway, Hemingway was a typical Midwestern writer. He was better than most, but he included that sky, the sun, the water. Now, I have read many Eastern writers, uh, and I'm talking about people who grew up in the urban area of New York, uh, in Boston, for example. This is an Eastern writer. Marquand is a good example of that. Marquand rarely included the outside, the, the, the menacing great green bank of the north woods that lie just north of Boston. He, he never mentioned it, as though it had nothing to do with the people living in Boston. Well, of course it does. Uh, but the people in Boston, because the building up this great society of Harvard, MIT, and all the rest of it, and the whole, the whole Brahmin society of Boston, were able to somehow successfully shut out that great dark green bank of woods that starts just north of Boston and goes all the way on up to the Arctic Circle. And <laughs> it's there, boy, it's there. And they, they've been able to say, no, 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 it's not there. It's right here at Copley Square. It's right here. Uh, it's right here. Uh, it's right here around Beacon Street. This is where it all is, and we can all work it out. Well, it's not quite so simple in a, in a, in a country that's not that new, or rather, it's, let's put it this way, that is newer. The newer the country, the more the menace of the outside world. Now, I remember as a kid, uh, and I have, to, I have to refer to the Midwest here, that, that summer is a thing that hits down and, and lays it out in that whole lake area out there and spells out unmistakably the fact that nature is there. How many of you know anything about southern Michigan? Well, southern Michigan is, uh, I think, uh, uh, one of the best summer parts of the United States. Summer because 
it affects the people, it affects, uh, it affects things they do and things they say and the whole lives of the people there. Southern Michigan is glacial country. The glacier, the great glacier that made the Midwest, that is, that made the Great Lakes. You know, those lakes were carved out by an enormous ice sheet that just came down out of, out of the Arctic and just gouged out five fantastic holes in the ground. And those holes in the ground, when the glaciers melted, became Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, uh, Lake Superior, Lake Ontario. And, and there they are. But it did more than that, you see. As the glacier petered out down around the far end of, of Lake Michigan, which hangs way down, you see, that's the furthest, the furthest encroach, the furthest mark, the high water mark of the Great Glacier. This glacier, as it came down, also dug millions of little holes, just like, like dug all over. It dug little holes, dropped rocks, made little hills. Uh, laid in a great deposit of sand, and then finally slowly receded and melted and left southern Michigan. Well, southern Michigan is, is a country you drive through it, and over every little hill is another lake. Now, lakes are in their own way. Of course, I never ran into artificial lakes till I came out here in the east. The idea of making a lake... Uh, people getting together and, and digging a hole in a vacant lot and making a lake is really, in a sense, another kind of air conditioning unit. It's another kind of uh, uh, artificial atmosphere. But in Michigan, there were millions of these lakes, and they just lay there in the sun. And as the sun would beat down on them, they would develop a kind of greenness. Now, these are weed lakes. They're not, they're not northern lakes. They're not they're not eastern lakes of rock bottom. They're mud and silt and sand, and they're full of garfish. You know what the garfish is? The garfish is one of the most ancient of all fishes. And one of the most spooky of all fishes. Just lays on the surface of a lake. Maybe he's a hundred, hundred pounds in weight, believe it or not. And a tiny lake, a tiny lake that's, that, that's maybe two miles long, a half mile across, will have garfish that weigh a hundred pounds. Now that sounds like I'm exaggerating, it's the truth. Uh, they'll be, they'll be six and seven feet long and they just lay in the sun and bask. Well, the farmers out there, knowing these things, seeing these things, I remember one lake in northern Michigan, now, now in, in southern Michigan rather, that had been completely taken over by snakes. The entire population of the lake, and there were little summer cottages, there were a couple of islands, had, had moved away from Donald Lake because Donald Lake had been taken over by a complete influx of poison snakes. Now, can you imagine that happening near Darien? It's just not going to happen. I mean, there, there would there, something would be done about it, is the way they say. There has to be a campaign. Well, there was no campaign, and, and people would drive past Donald Lake, and there would be a sign. It would say, Donald Lake, that way. And the road that led to Donald Lake was weed-grown, covered with, with weeds and, and, and dirt. It had washed down into the gullies. Nobody went to Donald Lake. Why? Snakes. And once in a while, a fisherman would go down that road all by himself with a jeep or with a little truck, and he would get at the edge of Donald Lake, and Donald Lake was a beautiful lake, just a lovely blue-green lake laying in, the, in, that, in that dark Michigan woods, but absolutely overridden, completely taken over by snakes. What kind of snakes? Rattlesnakes, water moccasins, copperheads just snakes. Well, 
fishermen would go down there, and he would he would push his little rowboat he carries on his on his car. He pushes his rowboat out into the into the waters of Donald Lake. He's not out five minutes when the whole water is just boiling all around him with water snakes who have come to investigate the foreign body that's arrived at the lake, and they would just swim around him. Well. He's there 10 minutes, and he pulls up his anchor, and believe me, he's back out at some nice tame lake, like Clear Lake, which is two miles away and has the dance hall and the roller rink. Well, this is the kind of world it is. Now, the reason I'm leading into this, this is a kind of summer madness. Have you been following the great monster mystery of Sister Lakes? Have you read about it? You haven't heard about this. Well, in the last couple of weeks, throughout southern Michigan, and I happen to know this area like the back of my hand, there has been a tremendous story building up, and I'm going to read it to you here, and it's because of the kind of country that it is out there. This is jungle, tropical, fetid, glacial country that in many places is overrun by snakes. I read to you, Sister Lakes, Michigan, United Press International, business is booming in Monster Town, USA. While townspeople at the southwestern Michigan resort quiver and quake over the lurking monster of Sister Lakes, most local businessmen smilingly admit sales are up. Harvey East, a variety store, reported that special monster kits were selling briskly. The kit, which retails at $7.95, consists of a baseball bat, a mallet, an arrow, a net, and a flashlight. I just let that soak into you there for a minute. This is America. This is 1964. This is a big resort area. Now, why are they selling baseball bats, mallets, arrows, and nets? The hairy 500-pound mystery creature also has spawned a horror movie double feature at the Duajiak Theater. Monster burgers are being offered at several area restaurants, and gas sales at local stations are booming due to the tremendous influx of sightseers. <laughs> Jack, ha let me tell you about Dwajak some night. Do you want to hear about Dwajak, Michigan? Dwajak, Michigan is a place where probably more than anything else, I learned, I learned the facts of life. Dwajak, Michigan is a total resort town surrounded by millions of tiny, festering glacial lakes. And Dwajak, Michigan, is not a resort town. You know, the resort town in the Midwest does not, bears no relationship to Bar Harbor, for example. It is not at all like mystic Connecticut. These are resort towns that have a quality of uh, civilization about them. As you walk about a resort town here in the, in the Cape, for example, what do you find at a resort town in the Cape as you walk around? First thing you find is a lot of shishi little places that sell sandals, Right? You find places where the little old lady has opened the uh, the uh, Cape Town bookstop, you know, little things with two P's and an E, and she sells she sells Kierkegaard, she sells paperback uh, Schopenhauer and and J D Salinger novels, and she sits in there and she wears her her wide dirndl skirt made by a local townsman, and she wears her her fishnet blouse and her great orange earrings and waits for them to come in. And they do come. They pat. It's like, it's like, it's like New Hope has spawned itself all over the eastern seaboard. It's like, it's like Fire Island has taken over the ocean, you know? It's, it's, it's a very different kind of resort. Well, in the Midwest, I'll tell you how a resort town looks. There are no such things as the little bookshoppy. 
Usually there's a drugstore that specializes in mosquito bite ointment. Uh, they have 45 kinds of local mosquito unguents, uh, various remedies that you never heard about here. Really, they do, they, because the mosquito's natural habitat is the Midwestern lake. Next to that is the hardware store. Now, the hardware store specializes in pails and fishing poles. They don't call it what we call it here, you know, the spinning rod. They have, they have giant collections of fishing poles, or locks. They have rowboats all laid up to the side there of the building, all laid laid across there. There is not an artist colony to be found in millions of miles. They, they don't sell watercolors, believe me, in, in, in Watervliet, Michigan. Uh, very few watercolors make that scene. Now, what does make the scene? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, people just come to kind of be part of this, this jungle area, this, this atmosphere, whatever it might be. Uh, it's hot. Oh, my God, it's hot there. The summertime in Michigan gets five times hotter over a longer period of time than we have it here. We've got the ocean, you know. We've got the trade winds. We've got the great breezes. But that sun lays down in southern Michigan just, just there. It just lays there day after day after day after day. Heat just begins to boil up out of those lakes, and the algae comes to the top. They flower. Have you ever heard of a lake flowering? Well, I'll tell you what flowering means. When a lake flowers in Michigan, that means all the weeds, which are like a jungle at the bottom of every lake, has, has flowered, literally flowered. They, 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 they give out their petals underwater. They, they produce their seeds and their green algae, which next year will be the next crop of weeds. Well, all of this scum floats to the top of the top of the water, and the fish move through it like like uh, like like they're moving through a great gob of some kind of antique jelly. Well, here is this land. Naturally, monsters abound in this area. You can't help but see monsters at the end of the lake. Now, the lake that I went to in southern Michigan, I'll have to describe to you the southern end of that lake. When the glacier receded. Ancient forests that had been there were knocked down flat and picked up and turned around and hurled back and forth until finally the, 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 the forest was totally denuded and left as a kind of, I suppose you might say, a kind of uh, skeleton of a, of, a, of, a, of a jungle. When the water had receded and had taken over again, moved in and taken over and moved in again and the rot had begun to pick up, the whole southern end of the lake was nothing but a series of, of ancient reaching up tree stumps just laying there in the water. Now, this water went back maybe a mile and a half, two miles back into the, into the darkness. Nothing but white trees reaching out of this. White trees that were thousands of years old. These were not just last year's trees. Just white bleached trees. Well, at 2 o'clock in the morning, after you've come in from casting for bass, and you could see way down at the end of the lake those gloomy, white, ghost-like reaching fingers, a heavy orange moon hanging over it, there it is. This is not a lake in Maine. It just doesn't have the same quality. It doesn't have the cleanliness of a lake in, in, in Connecticut, those nice rock-rimmed lakes. And they were indefinite. Swamps would lay to one side, just reaching off, and, and the cattails. Well, people live there, you know. They come down, and they see this, and they smell it, and they feel it. Do you want to hear more of what's going on in the monster world? Jack Hadley, in this is Sister Lakes, Michigan, where they get the Ed Sullivan Show every Sunday night. Believe me, 
They watch Sid Caesar. They know about Mary Martin. Jack Hadley, a local beer distributor, announced that he would offer a $1,000 reward for the live capture of the beast. But the offer, which still stands, has not been called in. Hadley, in fact, has talked of withdrawing the offer because Cass County Sheriff Robert Duell telephoned and said he'd better drop it to prevent the area from being completely overrun during the 4th of July. Hadley said he might withdraw it until such time as a safe monster hunt can be carried out. You notice he is not denying that there is a monster. He just says that we're liable to be overrun over the 4th of July, and they probably were. Cass County. Have you ever heard the name Cass County? Well, the center of Cass County is a town named Cassopolis. Cassopolis is a typical county seat of, of the Midwest, of Michigan. You know, you never hear anything about Michigan. Isn't that interesting how, how people talk a lot about Indiana and they sing about the Hoosier State and the moon over the Wabash? You even hear about such places as Ohio. Somehow, Ohio is always in the news. You have, you have senators from Ohio. You know, you have, you have, Ohio is there. You know about Ohio. Cleveland is there. You just don't hear about Michigan. You hear about Detroit, not Michigan. A very, very uh, a mysterious state. Listen to this. The other night, three youths from Detroit were sought when word got out that they were in the woods with a 375 h and H Magnum, a gun that uses shells five inches long. Duel's deputies also flushed out of the woods seven youths armed with baseball bats and clubs, and a farmer reported that someone took two shots at his black Shetland pony. Both missed. As a result of this, no one could blame local Chamber of Commerce for wanting to see the monster story perpetuated. Don't forget to mention that it's a heavily wooded area with 37 lakes, rolling country, friendly people, and the fishing is good, one local booster said. A few berry farmers, however, no longer find the monster amusing. Rumors spread quickly recently among the uneducated migrants who work the berry fields in the area where the monster has been seen. In one instance, four workers walked off the fields and quit their jobs rather than risk, risk encountering the giant creature. In other farms, the workers had to be prodded to go out in the fields. This was a joke at first, the farmer said, but it's not a joke anymore. We've lost a lot of berries because of this monster. The story of the nine-foot monster, which I, which eyes have been seeing, have circulated in the Sister Lakes area for the past three weeks. The most popular theories are that it's either an escaped circus gorilla, none has been reported missing, or more likely a berry-picking black bear which wandered south from his northern habitat. Now, I remember, now, now, no, don't look so sad. It's not necessarily a berry-picking black bear. Uh, everyone says, oh, isn't that sweet? Uh, for, for over five years, that same area was haunted with a report that a black leopard was loose among the lakes. And, about, and, and this was when I was a kid. About every two or three weeks, a report would come in that a, a sheep was killed or a man had seen it on the lakes, on the road. Well, I'll tell you what happened to me one night. Now, I'm going to describe my encounter with a monster one night in, 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 in Michigan. Yes. Now, I'll have to describe this, this scene. I'll tell you exactly what happened to me, exactly the way it happened and how it happened. It's a low, flat lake. Uh, the lake is probably at its deepest point 
15 feet deep. This is one of those shallow lakes that were gouged out by the glacier 10 million years ago and never quite completed. Uh, it was filled in with silt. It was a long, uh, sprawling lake. Now, this is not a lake. None of these lakes have definite outlines. They don't, they're not just a little round place, you know, or, or, or a long, thin lake. These lakes sprawl out like an amoeba because of the way they were made and because of the, the, uh, the swamps, because of the trees, because of the, the, the cattails. They just lay there. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm down there. I'm, about, I'm maybe 10 or 12 years old. And every summer, we came to this lake. It was, it was like a family ritual. We come to the lake. We rent the old ramshackle cottage. They had the kerosene lamps there, which, by the way, still persist in Michigan. Uh, the kerosene lamp is a very big thing in, in southern Michigan. And so we'd, we'd have the kerosene lamp, the rowboat, uh, the, the two-horsepower outboard motor that takes you around the lake to fish, the oar locks, and the fishing tackle, and we'd go out for bass day after day after day. Sunfish in the afternoon, bass at twilight. And at night, the boats would lay out there for maybe, oh, two or three hours with a few little lights shining in the boat, and then they would slowly begin to roll in. The temperature's about, oh, average anywhere between 85 and 95 degrees. And out in the darkness, beyond every hill, beyond every shore that you were in, was another lake, and another lake, and another lake. And as, as the bottom of the lake would sort of move up towards you, you were conscious of the lake far more than you are here in the east. You were conscious of the water. You're conscious of people constantly being caught in the weeds and being drowned. You know that, that, that this lake was continually being dragged. Uh, you, you'd be sitting in your, your rowboat, and down at the other end of the lake, people are rowing around with, with hooks. They're dragging for the guy that was caught in the weeds this morning, dragged down by the weeds and who didn't come up. And they're dragging, and they're dragging. You see the lights down there. and they, They're playing on the water. And then suddenly the whole party would leave. And the next morning you'd hear they found him. He was down there among the sunfish, down among the bass, wearing his Jansen swimming suit with the little girl diving off the board, caught among the weeds that had pulled him in. Well, you're, you're sitting there, you know, you're, you're, you're fishing. And one night, because I was the fishing nut in the family, and uh, my father was kind of, you know, come see, come sigh, he fish. He did. When he fished, he fished. When he wasn't fishing, he wasn't fishing. He'd sit on the porch. My kid brother was always just sort of along with me. He kind of half liked fishing and half didn't, but really liked being in the boat. My mother was strictly non-fishing. She was always in the kitchen, uh, <laughs> doing whatever people do in the kitchen in summer cottages. And every night I would say, I would, I would say, uh, let me, I'm going to stay out just a little bit. My old man said, now look, you've got to get in because the word was always out that at night the water was more dangerous than it was in the daytime. More dangerous because it was black. During the day it was dark green and had weeds in it. At night it was black and had weeds in it. Oh boy. And so the yeah, no, come on, get in. So I am out, I am out. It's about, oh, it must have been about 8, 8.30. And the sun in the Midwest is different than it is here uh, for many reasons. It hangs over the horizon, just lays there. Uh, there is no sea that pulls it down. And that long, big orange sun, and finally it's now dark. It's just on the edge of darkness, and I am casting for bass among the tree stumps. I row in. My plug, my bassarino, is caught on a root. I'm rowing in among the tree stumps. It's getting darker and darker. 
and I can hear the crows rising from among the, the, the stumps and from among the cattails, just taking off. I'm rowing in deeper and deeper and deeper. It's getting darker and darker and darker. And suddenly it is pitch black, totally black. I sat there for a minute. I turn around, and directly in front of me, you know, you row in backwards when you're rowing a boat. Directly behind me, I see something round, black and round. Just round and black and moving. Just moving. It seems to be moving toward me. I start rowing backward like mad. I'm rowing like mad. My reel is now unreeling. I can... My plug is still hooked back in the woods somewhere. I'm rowing out. Boom! I hit the rocks. Boom! Back out in the open water. I look back. My line is laying into the woods there. I, I, what, what am I going to do? I break my line, lose my bass arena, and I row like I'm out of my skull for home. I am rowing. I, to this day, I have no idea what it was. I know I saw it. I know I saw it. And so when you go into those Nigerian jungles, you hear the sounds that you never expected to sound. You hear tom-toms, and they're saying things to you. You hear, oh boy, the minute that they blow that jungle atmosphere... The minute they blow it, I'm sure, through, through uh, the lever house, you're going to find another kind of soap being made. Now, did I see something black in the jungle there? I don't know. The question is, I think I did, so I did. I think I did, so I did. Did I? Bring me in that speaky, that terrible, scary music. Listen to this. Why do people write this? This is written, you know. What jungles do they see inside themselves? Yeah. What is it? I can hear it. It's coming through cloud, loud and clear. Okay. Now... The only point I'm making, <laughs> if there is such a point, is that inside of every one of us, there is a dark, furry thing at the end of the corridor. It's just there. Now, is it there? Or is it not there? Well, it's there if it's there. And <laughs> it's there if you see it. It's there if you see it. If, if, you go into, if you go into the bush in Nigeria and you look down along those those great hanging lianas and vines, you look past past the edge of the waterfall and you hear the tom-toms beating. Is it there? Yes, it's there. Of course it's there. There's no question about it, it's there. You're darn right it's there. Well, as long as I live, I'm going to see at the end of the boat among the tree stumps, in the moonlight, next to the black water, amid all the cattails and the smell of the rotting, the rotting shoreline, there is a black furry creature. Sister Lakes, Michigan. Now, every night somebody would come in rowing like mad. And never say anything to anybody. You just row in. You know, you see the guys rowing past you with their eyes staring. <laughs> and then, of course, when the sun comes up the next morning, you go back out there. I'll tell you what I did. The next morning, I rowed back to the swamp and got my bassarino. There it was, hooked on the bottom of a stump. There was nothing to be seen. The sun was shining. A couple of beer cans were floating down there in that shallow water. 
And on the bottom of the lake, I could see those weeds. You know, weeds are like long, thin, green, yellow fingers. They're caught in currents. They just move and reach up for you. They flick a little bit. And over there to the left, I saw this big garfish just laying there with his big black back catching the sun. He was basking. I rode back out to the sunfish hole, dropped the worm in and sat there and waited for the bluegills and the sunfish to hit, watching my red and white bobber. And off at the other end of the lake, I could hear him shouting. Another guy was caught in the weeds. I could hear him shouting. And that night, as I went casting for bass, the lights were out again, moving across the water, and I could hear the rowboats, the sheriff's men, with their great big grappling hooks, they were looking for another guy in a Jansen swimming suit with that girl diving off the swimming board. And down among the sunfish and the gars, the weeds had got him. The weeds had got him. Thing. 